I, I really thought a lot about what is it that makes startup companies great. And I think I've learned a lot there. And that, that's part of what I've really... Sorry? Well, there's a trivial and, and perhaps often overemphasized thing, but it probably isn't overemphasized. And that is, it is about people. Uh, so if, if you go in and assess a company that has the stupidest business idea made by the cleverest people, they will have a high, much higher chance of just succeeding than the greatest business ideas by people who are not as, as qualified at building a company. Welcome back to Deep Tech Stories, a podcast making creators, entrepreneurs, and idealists in the deep tech space accessible by highlighting their stories and pulling their ideas from the lab into the real world. I'm Philip Stürmer, and on the show today, the first part with Kasper Wilstrup and the road to coming up with a new kind of AI. Modern AI, in particular so-called deep learning, is everywhere. Alone in the last few months, a new generation of image generation based on text prompts emerged that is arguably on par with human others. However, in many crucial applications, the black box nature of such models is a problem. If you want to let the AI drive a car, no regulator or decision maker will allow it. The same is true for any applications that deal with scientific understanding. You want to understand why the AI comes to its prediction and which parts of your dataset are essential. But there's a different approach to AI that would be able to solve this black box problem, so-called symbolic regression. Instead of obtaining several million or billions of parameters which make up your model, you would get an equation that the person can understand just by looking at it. The problem is, symbolic regression is insanely hard to do. In fact, it is so tricky that no one has managed to use it for anything than the most basic toy models. No one but a small Danish startup called Apsu, which just received a 2.5 million euro grant from the European Union to apply their symbolic regression algorithm to drug discovery. Apsu CEO Kasper Wilstrup, an avid coder ever since his childhood, initially came up with the idea for Apsu, the Q letters, during his physics studies in the mid-90s. Ever since he came up with the idea to solve symbolic aggression, his career took many twists and turns, all leading back to him studying physics and getting his first computer when he was nine years old. I got my first computer, I believe, in early 1980. The way I got it was because a friend of mine showed up in my house in the countryside one day. I was about nine or ten years old. Mm -hmm. And he brought a computer that I didn't know at the time. I didn't know what a computer was. But it turned out that the computer was a, a Sinclair ZX81, which is a very primitive machine. One kilobyte of RAM. It was a Z80 CPU um, at, I think, 2.2 megahertz. Very slow, very slow. And it had, it had a lot of weird little quirks. And you connected it to your TV through an antenna cable, and, and then you code a little bit there, as much basic code as you could put into one kilobyte of RAM. That's not a lot. Yep. Uh, that was not my first computer, but the thing is he left it with me because <laughs> he was bored with it, so, uh, so it became mine, and I, I used that for a couple of years. And then a couple of years later, I actually bought uh, the computer that I think of as the beginning of 
my passion for computers. That was the Sinclair ZX Spectrum. This was technically not my first computer. It's the first computer that I actually owned, mm-hmm. um, but it's not the one that I, that, that I started with. Uh, but it's the one that 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 was powerful enough to, to do anything for real. And that's where the passion really started. I mean, by, by today's standards, it's basically just a pocket calculator. Yeah, it's actually, yes. the Z80 CPU, it's a Silog CPU that sits inside of it, is is way weaker than what you'd have in a standard pocket calculator nowadays. Yeah. It's, it is a really old-fashioned CPU, but it's a, it, it is a CPU, 8-bit, and a full instruction set, and it comes with this quaint little basic interpreter that was built into it by Sinclair Research Limited. Um, that that allows you to code a little bit uh, once you power it up in basic. But even the basic is also quite limited. So what really quickly happened, at least to me, was I figured out that you could you could actually code it in assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no direct way to code this guy this thing in assembly. Uh, but um, that that is actually not that hard to code in. It's hard to make a big complicated program, but it's not hard to make a program that writes uh, "Hello world, I am your ZX Spectrum." Um, on the screen, and you nope. can say, "Who are you?" And then little user can write Casper, and then say, "Hi, Casper. How old are you?" And that those kind of programs. That's that was the kind of programs that I coded for the for the first say. Half year. What, what was the fascination there when you when you were nine or ten and Alan brought the computer? Yes, I was reflecting on that actually yesterday because I posted it on LinkedIn yes. in, in, on its fortieth anniversary. Um, I. Uh, it, it was a very strong feeling, and it's a little hard, I guess, to express to people who've grown up with computers. But I remember this. No way. This can't be true. I type something on a device that looks like a typewriter, uh, and then that gets shown on my TV screen, which cannot normally show things that I type. Mm-hmm. And then I can actually run that program, and it does things, and it can interact with me almost as if it was alive. Uh, and I, I think I felt the Alan Turing-style fascination that, that a computer can trick you into feeling that it's almost uh, alive uh, and that you control what it can do and you can bring out any potential out of it. So it was a, it was a very strong feeling of creative power um, that's probably hard to recognize today because we've, I mean, all what I just explained here is, is you wouldn't even think about how crazy that is if you've never seen it. But for a kid who had never, ever interacted with a computer, no. and a TV was a one-way thing that showed uh, movies. Uh, not even that, particularly often, because in 1980, <laughs> Danish television was not all that exciting. And suddenly you had this, uh, this complete new modality. It opened up a different kind of world to, to me that I just didn't believe existed, and it, was just, it seemed miraculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so that got me hooked. And it also got a lot of other kids my age hooked. I wasn't the only one. We were like, in every class, at least in my school, there were two or three of these early adopters of, of this generation of, of 1981 to 1985 computers that came out. Well, the Sinclair Spectrum was, was the first big one in Denmark and I, I believe in the entire uh, Northern Europe. Uh, but on its heels came, came the Commodore 64, which was... Uh, Probably a lot more popular. Uh, it's, it was better for gaming. This this one, my luck, I guess. <laughs> you you can't really buy good. You never could buy good games for it because it's it's not good at at gaming. It's too yeah. weak and uh, not enough colors on the screen and uh, 
it can't make sounds. It can only say only say e, and it's 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 too primitive. It's too primitive. So okay. that meant that, and that's something that I've also reflected on myself. That meant that um, as a kid, I quickly realized that the games I made were no worse and sometimes better than the games that I could buy in my local computer store. Um, so suddenly you had this system where it was feasible for a fact when I was a little older, 13, 14 years old, it was feasible for me to create computer games and computer programs in general that was as good or even better than what people were actually buying. An example, I remember, this was probably in sixth grade or something, I had another friend of mine, a guy called Thomas, who was also a, 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 an avid coder. And we had a competition where we gave each other one week who can make the best game. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we just went home and we coded and we met after that weekend but and how compared did you games. learn how to code because you were nine or ten and you just went to your parents or went to the public libraries like libraries okay yes uh books on basic and assembly books on coding the the static spectrum started coming out i probably there was also a manual so there actually is a fairly good manual to the static spectrum that teaches initial basic coding mm -hmm. but nothing in, in terms of assembly can almost even remember what the books look like. Um, relatively small books by nerds for nerds that just described the set 80 assembly language, for instance. And your parents were like, God, what is he doing? What is Cosper doing? Go yeah. to the library every day. Yeah, yeah. Well, not every day because you also have to read the books. But yes, I think my parents were a little bit um, mesmerized by, by what in the world was, was this kid up to. Mm -hmm. uh, also because I probably deviated a little bit from what I never really played computer games in that era. It's, it didn't really catch on. I was much more into doing things, and I still have that thing in me that I don't really like to consume. <laughs> I like to produce, okay. uh, and that goes across anything. And it's not even some. It's not a moral stance or anything. It's just how I am as a person. How how did this urge of producing play out in school then? Because if you, uh, yeah, like a task, you're like, please read this book, and you're like. Oh. Really? Do I have to? Uh, <laughs> it wasn't like that. I, I, I also I can certainly enjoy a good movie or reading a book or or listening to music. And uh, I, I I was a good friend with school. I, I never really minded going to school. I was a little bit lazy. I guess everybody probably are. Didn't do my homework. School was fine for me. And then somewhere along the point, you you decided to go into physics instead of going the that's, that's the actually common route of uh, computer science and. Yeah, but that wasn't the common road at the time. Sometime during my grade school years and in, in say probably the late eighties, started to think about more deeply about what I actually wanted to do when I grew up. Mm -hmm. But computer science wasn't really a thing. You could actually study computer science at the time. The the, the computer science institute at Copenhagen University had just been created out of the mathematics institute, but it wasn't really clearly a, a career thing. Computers were so new in the in the conceptualization of people. I didn't, and, and, and this is a little detour, but I think even today, it's still not entirely clear what you do when you do computer science. It's like computer science is a tool that yeah. you do use for something else, right? So I, if you do software that is used by the insurance industry, why don't you call you a, an insurance analyst? If you do software that's used by a physicist, why don't you call yourself a physicist and so on? But but nonetheless, it has become an, a a trade and a and, uh, and and a career route in its own right. But it wasn't clear at all in the mid '80s that it was something you could study. That would be like studying paper uh, because you needed to write, or yep. studying 
Um, I mean, in, in the end, it's kind of just discrete mathematics. Yes, yes. So in that sense, it could make a lot of sense to study mathematics, which was certainly also among the things that I considered. So it wasn't clear even when I started at the university what I actually wanted to do. Uh, did I want to be a, a physicist or a mathematician? So it was, uh, it was certainly because I felt that computers were core to what I was good at and something I really wanted to use that I went in that direction. But it didn't occur to me to start a com study computer science as such. Um, so that's, yeah. that meant physics and mathematics. So you were in your first semester, I guess you picked some courses in maths or you had the mandatory courses in maths that everyone has. And then the physics courses and then maybe a bit of chemistry. I no, no chemistry. So no I ended, chemistry. I ended up taking, on the first year, I ended up taking what's called physics one, which is a, which is a, a third of a, of, of a year. And then I took mathematics one, which is a third of a year. And then I actually took computer science zero, was, was what it was called, uh, which is also a third of a year. Uh, computer scientists have to be different, right? So they were numbered from zero and upwards, and the other courses were from one and upwards, but whatever. And that was my first year. So even after the first year, the, the options were still open to either pursue yeah. a master's in, in any of those things. But then after that, I, I had to pick, and then it became physics and mathematics. Um, so I actually, that's that's what I did on what would be called the undergraduate part nowadays. Um, so computer science was pushed to the side, and I took some courses, but only to fill the holes in the curriculum. <laughs> so it was more like a thing that I did as a physicist, uh, as a physics student, than it was uh, something I studied. But it also became very much that. This is this is where my life really starts taking taking the direction it has followed ever since. Because even as a first year student, I ended up at that time nobody could code in the physics environment. Like Still a few people, then, so. nah. At least they know a little bit of Python nowadays. At so that time, you, I'd say about yep, one yeah. in ten prof professors could do Fortran, and then nine in ten professors could do nothing. They couldn't code at all. So, but nonetheless, it was clear to everybody that this was a, a useful tool for for physics not only experimental physics but generally for a lot of things within physics so people like me still a relatively small group who were actually really good at coding got pulled into a lot of things i was pulled into uh, the tandem accelerator labo laboratory down at Riesö, and i sat there all alone and coded the control software for some of the modules in the tandem accelerator so this this is weird just to think about right a second year maybe first year i don't quite remember year student being asked to code the software that controls the, the tandem accelerator that wouldn't happen today <laughs> but that did happen back then because nobody else could code um yeah. and uh, and that meant that i got involved in things that that you would normally not get involved in as an as an undergraduate student nowadays and uh, and that really shaped my direction because i, I quickly I do find physics very fascinating. I'm 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 a big fan and still reader of physics. I would probably also think of myself as a fairly good physicist. I also got good grades in that. But 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 uh, but the thing that really drove me was what computers could do to to power physicists more than being a physicist myself. Um, and that got me involved with uh, with some early projects to build computer clusters. So again, remember this was in 1993. So the networks were slow and unreliable and and uh, simplex, meaning that only one computer can speak at a time. So not particularly efficient. So that meant that real computer clusters were were hard to build. So all of the high-performance computing initiatives at the university at the time was based on on much bigger single computers that, that the institute was buying from IBM, actually, and I, the machines we bought at the time at the institute. And these machines cost several million kroner apiece. Uh, and that was what the institute bought to 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 do computing on. Mm. And I, I got involved in actually buying these machines and 
figuring out which ones we should buy because I knew stuff about that. So I was pulled in by a professor to help with that. And then me and, and a friend got the idea, hey, we can build these supercomputers ourselves based on commodity hardware in a networked environment. So we essentially came up with the idea of building a computer cluster to run simulations of things. So I started looking for an operating system that would allow us to build such a cluster. At the time, I was uh, using an operating system on my own machine called Minix, uh, which is a 16-bit Unix clone that was not particularly efficient. But then I, in looking around, and came the 32-bit machines, and then I looked around. How, how did you look around back then? Because you obviously didn't have Google. I, no, I didn't have Google, <laughs> but actually we did have uh, access to the internet. Uh, so in the, I, I met the internet first in 1991 when I... Uh, when I started uh, working on various computer things at the at the institute, we had a computer available to the students. That machine was an IBM i6000, but it, w- it was one of the older models. So we students could play with that. And that one was connected to the internet, mm-hmm. the nascent internet of the days. So I was able to search around, uh, not on Google, obviously, but... Yeah. I remember the internet before the World Wide Web. In the beginning, you used to Gopher and Archie and those kind of protocols to search for information and a lot of Usenet, uh, so these bulletin board services. This was the, the kind of, a, of, of methods I used to, to search around. Then I came across a very early publication by Linus Torvalds of the, of the Linux operating system before version 1.0. And he was just at that time working to actually create a 32-bit operating system like Minix. I think he even described it as a 32-bit version of Minix. Mm-hmm. It isn't because Minix was a microkernel architecture, whereas Linus Torvalds, for various reasons, decided on a monolithic uh, kernel approach. Uh, but anyway, it was a 30, definitely a 32-bit Unix-like operating system. So I got involved with that uh, because that makes sense because this operating system was what we needed to build the computer clusters. Uh, However, we also needed to write some network drivers for that to work because uh, the coaxial cables were just too slow to build a cluster based on it. And the Institute had had just bought something called a copper digital data interchange system, very expensive networking technology. It was crap really, but that's what they bought. And it was 100 megabits. So it was in many ways much faster than, than, than the contemporary approaches. But that meant that to use the Linux, the, the Linux machines, we had to actually hack the kernel to support this, uh, this network architecture that we had. So, so you, you basically had to build kind of everything from scratch, assemble everything from scratch, yeah, code everything from scratch. More or less. We, build, we essentially built operating systems from scratch by fine-tuning uh, Linux to actually work on this. So... And it consumed me. This is what I did. Less and less physics, more and more that. Yeah. Uh, and then different kind of physics researchers would come to me and say, hey, can you help me with this or that? Or actually, me and my friend, that other guy, also called Casper. And we just loved helping with these kind of things. So um, I became less and less of a physicist and more and more of a in-house computer nerd at the Niels Bohr Institute. And they, they paid you for that or do you just... Sometimes, yes. Sometimes. Uh, so some of these projects were paid and and sometimes they were not. But yes, I think I, that's pretty much what I lived from. I had It was a paid thing. Yeah. And then we started to run into this idea of quantum lattice gauge simulations. So I don't know if you're quite familiar with the approach, but what it really is about is you, you think about particles in... In, in quantum space as if they can't take a continuous path from A to B. They can only take a discrete path where they jump between the centers of, of cubes in a lattice space. Yep. So instead of going from here through some arbitrary path to there, then they have to take discrete steps 
through a a, a computerized yeah, lab. Basically, like if I'm like I have a, be- a ball on a hill, and instead of having the smooth surface off the hill, I just have steps where I can exactly. Yeah. And then add to that a Feynman path integral, where what you're really trying to do is you you want to to sum up all an infinite set of possible trajectories through space uh, and time from for particles move from A to B. That's a Feynman path integral, and that can be solved analytically in some situations. But the moment you have two or more particles that you have to do a Feynman path integral over, you can't. So if you want to understand the behavior of n particles in a quantum space, then the only method actually is through quantum lattice simulations, unless you have another experimental setup. So if you want to simulate it, that's the only way you can do it. So you do it in this lattice space where you chop up space and time in in little squares or little boxes, and then you can can calculate it to completion within that lattice space, all possible trajectories that particles can take. You do your final path integral in that space, and then you can make the size of of the edges smaller and smaller, and then you can see, does this model converge to something, and then that is the result of the Feynman path integral. And then you can verify experimentally that that actually matches. So that's that's the rough idea in a in a quantum lattice gate simulation. So that's what we did with the, the clusters we were building. Uh, and uh, and uh, I quickly got the idea that this is really a graph search algorithm. Mm-hmm. What you're really doing there is you're actually searching through an infinite space of potential graphs, and graphs here meaning nodes and edges, um, so the computer science sense of the word graph, where you have uh, uh, balls connected like, by edges. Uh, I, have a, I have a train network, and I'm going from Berlin to Barcelona, and every train station on the way that somewhere in Europe is a node on every train track is an edge. Exactly. And then I can transport things in various ways through there. Exactly. That That's what a computer scientist would think of as a graph. Yeah. So, uh, so a trajectory of n particles uh, through a lattice space is also a graph. Because uh, they can meet and interact, they can uh, also change themselves. That's a self-interaction. So you have you can actually think of this as a node and edge thing. So anything that can be thought of as a node and edge thing can be studied with the same methods as you study uh, Feynman path integrals in this lattice space. Uh, and that's regardless of whether it's a traveling salesman like graph problem, or if it's a, uh, a logic diagram, or if it's a mathematical equation. Because a mathematical equation can also be written as a graph. Mm-hmm. If I say A plus B, you can think of that as the nodes being plus and A and B being nodes. And then there's an edge that says A goes over to plus and B goes over to plus and out comes up. Now you have translated A plus B to a graph. You can do the same with any mathematical expression. You can translate it to a graph and back. There's a bidirectional way to do that. So that means that we can actually think of every trajectory in this space as a mathematical formula or equation. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we can use the methods that have been fine-tuned to study this kind of problem, to study the, the space of all mathematical equations. That is the core idea of, of actually what we do here at Absu. And that idea was given birth to in late 1990s. Yeah, I, I, I usually think that it was around 95, because that matched chronologically with what I was doing at the time. No. I, I can't really say for sure if it was 95, 97 or something, but it, it dawned on me that we were not studying Feynman path integrals. We were actually studying graphs. Um, but was that a... The dawning was it a progressive process during your, your quantum field theory lecture, or was it just sitting there and you you saw the formulation? Just I think it's it's in implementing these things. The moment you realize that how do I actually implement it? Well, I have to make a structure that represents the state of each lattice, mm-hmm. uh, and it can either be active or not active in a certain um, 
time step or uh, space time step actually, but at, at any given time, uh, it can be active or not active in the in the graph. And then you want to store this lattice, and the lattice gets bigger and bigger because you make the edge sizes go down. And how can you store that efficiently? Well, you store it by storing just the active uh, nodes and the connections with the other nodes. That's essentially a graph. So suddenly you you can't really implement this without realizing that you're that you are actually studying graphs. Of course, if you're not a computer scientist, you may not think about it as something that has any interest in that sense. But I did. I can't say you, tell you why. I just did. It was came to me. This is a general graph search algorithm. Yep. But I didn't do anything about it at the time at all. It was just an idea, and uh, I played with it and let it rest. Because what I did instead was that the other guy, Casper, uh, the other Casper, and I had developed some software that was designed to run directly on the network cards of these cluster computers that allowed us to do a lot of uh, optimizations of the routing of the TCP traffic in a network uh, cluster. So essentially a smart network card that was tailor-made to build high-performance computing systems. Like an actual physical card. An actual physical card. This, this network interface card, you, it existed with, uh, with FPGAs on them, so you could actually code them uh, in, in a very primitive way. So you could do things on these network cards that could offload work from this from the central processing unit of the computers, mm-hmm. and in that inside of these um, cards or in the computer itself on the network layer, on the processing layers, and we could also do stuff there. But fundamentally, we built network interface cards that were fine-tuned for people who wanted to load balance tasklets or tasks on a cluster, and then we started a company to try to produce and commercialize and sell this technology. The company was called uh, Unispeed, and uh, it, we started it in late 1999. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So that is that is really interesting in one sense because the, we had early traction. This this was the heydays of the dot com era, yeah. uh, the and bubble mania exactly. <laughs> and our first customers for this technology was data centers at big network operators at the time, and those were the dot comies. So I think our biggest customer was UB which was a Yahoo clone in Denmark by Kasper Larsen, Martin Torborg, and Henrik. Another Kasper. Uh, yeah, yeah, another Kasper. <laughs> and that's interesting because that other Kasper, Kasper Larsen, actually ended up investing in, in our company. Yep. Uh, so he, he bought a share in, in, in Unispeed. And, and then it was Kasper, Kasper, and Kasper um, <laughs> doing, uh, doing this, this crazy technology. And we sold it to UB, obviously, first, but then also to other of the bigger companies at the time, like Ashiro, we also ended up selling it even to eBay and companies like that, and they kind of um, uh, emerged. But then the dot-com bubble yeah. burst, and it didn't kill us. We found kind of a way to survive as a company, but I... But suddenly all customers were just struggling massively. and Yeah, yeah. And it, it was no fun from then on and onwards. And I we had a bumpy ride from then until 2006, and then I just exited it, sold it. I think I, think I sold it in 2004. And then I had to spend two more years. So that was what took me out of physics and into the startup world. Mm-hmm. Um, so for five years, Unispeed was all that mattered. And we went from being the three Caspers. And at, I think at our peak, we were 18 or 19 people. Um, and, uh, and then down from there. That, I guess, changed my, my career trajectory a lot. Because suddenly I was not just... A computer nerd with physics aspirations. I was a, a computer nerd with business aspirations. Yep. Um, when you when you sold it, was that more of a relief or? Yeah, it was a relief. It was a relief. Uh, we had we'd been through two booms and busts. So first the dot com, and then we found a new business vertical. 
but the new business we went into was suddenly copied by one of our collaborators and then they kind of stole the entire market and then we went almost bust again and i repaired the company once again and uh, and then two years later there would have been another birth <laughs> yeah i guess and you can never really say yeah it, it was no sometimes you just have to wash your hands and start over with something new so yeah. I, i sold unispeed and then i had 10 years as a consultant, I joined a, a very new, newly established consultancy company called Best Brains, actually, that was founded by another friend of mine. And I came into that company with this, let's make a big business out of this. Now I was the businessman and I wanted to, to take my new knowledge and bring that to, to some kind of... Um, no, wait, first I wrote a book. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then I sold that book to a, to a, to a publishing house. And that, that, then I wanted to be... a I was thinking, should I just change direction entirely and write fiction? I mean, by then you were... Mid-20s, late 20s, uh, late, 20s, late yeah. 20s, yes. I think 29, perhaps. No, that's not true. Actually, 35 or something like that. This was in 2006. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For some reason, yes. I, I calculated you getting your first distributor when you were freshly born. For some yeah, reason, yeah. So. <laughs> not quite, not quite. <laughs> I was born in 71. I, I was in my late 30s, mid, mid to late 30s when I wrote The Land of Forgotten Gods. So anyway, that was that year, a little more than a year, sabbatical thing. I also had my first kid. No, I didn't. I had my first two kids while the, during the Unispeed. Yes, I had my third kid uh, while I wrote that book. Do you have more than three kids? Or? I have four kids. Okay. There's this weird pattern that I keep seeing that people in Sweden have three kids. Ah. And that seems to be the golden amount for mm. all academics in Sweden for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually a pretty good number. However, I think two and two is also very good because they, they, they can be solo twins or really have each other. Yep. So my two oldest is they're 20 and 18 and the youngest is 13 and 10. Actually, he isn't 10. He turns 10 in, in a few days. Okay. Um, so they're, 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 they're tightly coupled in pairs um, and I think they enjoy having each other a lot, children. So I, yep. I, I certainly... I'm happy for myself that I had more than one for sure. Um, I was. Um, I also have two brothers, so I'm also part of a family with three. But yeah. I had four, and my brother has five. So we want, apparently wanted to surpass our parents. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are a lot of. Um, and now they're big. His his children are also grown up now. But for, for a while, I can, you can imagine the family get together with <laughs> a lot of children. Yes. While I was writing that book, I was thinking about what now, and then I ended up joining Best Brains. Uh, and I came into Best Brains with with full ambitions about taking this rather interesting uh, consultancy community style company into a big success. I also was at that time very interested in organizational culture and how to bring the best out of people through good work environments and good work experiences where you can really flourish. So I had a lot of like, those ideas with me into Best Brains. And Best Brains was a good success. It was a very nice uh, consulting company. I worked a lot with. I started finding a special, a Casper specialty, if you will, where I, I would help uh, big companies uh, who wanted to do what we kind of dubbed internal startups, who wanted to be more startup-y in some internal business initiative. So I joined some of these companies as a consultant mm -hmm. through Best Brains and tried to build up a business line around selling these kind of, we call them Ignite projects, uh, where you, you wanted to reignite your business by having a, a startup that gets incubated inside of an existing corporate. corporate that The idea still exists. It's very challenging to make it work in practice for a lot of reasons. I keep seeing people with job title like uh, in-house entrepreneur or intrapreneur. If you're yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's still a dream, but I, I think I, I, if there's 
there's a couple of things that you have to accept as a corporate if you want to get that to succeed. And it's things that is very hard for a lot of corporates to accept. It has to do with letting go of control. And it has to do with accepting that an internal incubation can fail or succeed on its own terms. And if you try to, as an external stakeholder inside of the organization, to do what you think is right to make it succeed, then in a way you're actually killing it. You're making it into an other department in your mm -hmm. organization. And that's just, a, for most leaders in, in corporate environments, it's an insurpassable barrier to accept what they perceive as wrong decisions being made in uh, inside of an incubated project inside inside of the company. So control processes creep in bit by bit, and then suddenly it's no longer an, a, a startup being entrepreneur anymore at all. It's just yet another business initiative. Yeah. I've seen that happen every time. So that's what I dedicated myself to for, I think, from 2009 to 2015 or so. Uh, but I also started working with, I had my network connect, my connections with the VC industry, the venture capital industry, also quite immature at that time compared to what it is today. Uh, so I worked as a consultant for a lot of the Danish uh, VC funds in the, in the late 10s, early uh, uh, 10, yeah, from, from around 2008, 9 and, and onwards. Uh, and what I mo mainly did was due diligence, that is assessing the quality of a, of a potential investment candidate uh, mm -hmm. on behalf of these funds. And I've seen uh, during those years, I've, I've worked on or help make investment decisions in more than 80 different startup companies. So I've seen a lot of startup companies and I also have seen how they would develop. So I'll, I'll and I also collected some data on that. So, <laughs> so I, I, I really thought a lot about what is it that makes startup companies great. And I think I've learned a lot there and that that's what, part of what, what I've really, sorry. What was it in, in hindsight? Well, there's a trivial and, and perhaps often overemphasized thing, but it probably isn't overemphasized. And that is, it is about people. Uh, so if if you go in and assess a company that has the stupidest business idea made by the cleverest people, they will have a high, much higher chance of just succeeding than the greatest business ideas by people who are not as as qualified at building a company. Qualified so, in terms of hard skills or how they interact? It, it, it's, it's a combination of... I guess what people would like to call leadership skills, but I really call it motivational skills of so creating an environment where creativity and skills can really flourish and come to, to fruition. Yeah, let's call it leadership, but it's more than that. It's, it's also a coaching mentality combined with acceptance of the reality of business life. There's, there are certain things that just have to, to work for a, for a company to be successful. Uh, it doesn't have necessarily have to make more money than it spends. That's definitely not a thing in the startup world. But it has to make m money and it has to have a clear idea about how that, how are you solving a problem that is from an outcome perspective important to some people who have money. Yep. That's, and it's so tempting to, at least I think in the dot-com bubble, that was probably the main problem. And it's not even my quote, but I think the way it was often formulated was the business plans of the day was, was very much have awesome technology, Build cool product, mumble mumble, make money, and the mumble mumble part is where you the, the battles in startup companies are, are are won or lost. No, if you can get the mumble mumble to not be mumble mumble, then then you will succeed, um, even if your product is not particularly cool. Uh, I mean, the the most recent example is uh, what was it Fast three or four weeks ago? Yeah, it's a company that had a hundred million in funding and I don't know how many hundred employees, but managed to make a hundred k in one year. Yeah, yeah, or fast checkout, and it's just 
yeah. promoted himself based <laughs> on that. Exactly. And that's that's a danger in startup culture, right? Because we in startup culture, you do actually accept the no revenue or low revenue situation. And that's a good thing. I mean, it, it allows you to do more risky things. Yes, exactly. For a while. Uh, but of course, you have to know when that while ends. You have to have the business acumen to understand what are you trying to figure out while you're not making money? And 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 that thing had better be how you're going to make money. Uh, and not necessarily only that. You can think about a lot of other things like here at Absolute. We think a lot about AI and the huge future of humanity and philosophy of mind and all sorts of things that really motivates us to do what we do better. But it has to all be combined into an idea about, okay, what does this mean in terms of outcome for somebody who has money and who will pay you for that? Mm-hmm. If not now, then later. And if you get that right, then you're you're going to succeed. Uh, and uh, and that doesn't matter so much what your product is. Uh, of course, if you have a cool technology or cool product, then the success may be bigger. But in terms of the VC business models, it's not really so much that. Ah, there's always an element of luck as well, right? You can also you can also have a business idea that's just very well suited, but suddenly I mean, you're doing time. something for companies that uh, for company offices, and then suddenly you realize that there's a COVID lockdown that means that nobody actually invests in their office space uh, for a while, and well, that's not a good thing if you're a company that has a, a product that's focused on. So so luck plays a role as well, but yep. but what plays less of a role is actually the product in the initial phases uh, and and you could even say the technology i think that when you look at a danish startup community at least back then i think it's perhaps starting to change but the danish startup community of uh, in in the zeros and tens was uh, very often a very tech that also matched that was also my uh, my um, pedigree a very tech person who who tries to make some kind of business uh, whereas the U.S. Silicon Valley approaches more often a business person who has some kind of idea, and then he he finds a tech co-founder to to help him realize that mm. idea. Uh, and I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I'm saying that you can be fumble with the tech for a while without that destroying you, but you can't fumble with the business uh, for very many, for for a while, only very briefly at least. Um, so if you're not good at the business side of things, you're not going to succeed. Uh, whereas if you're not good at the tech side of things, you can you can get that skill uh, later on. So I think that the, the American startup culture is probably a bit more healthy in that sense. Okay. And I think it's also changing. But that being said, I have met tech founders. Well, people like Elon Musk is a tech founder. So clearly a tech founder can also be successful. Yep. But if I were to just blindly put money into a, a businessman with a product idea pairing with a, with a tech, or a tech man with a tech idea pairing with a business, I would, I would take the first one. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to hear more, subscribe to Deep Tech Stories wherever you listen to your podcast or follow me on Twitter. You will be hearing back from me in two weeks with the second part of this interview where Kasper explains how he built Upsu and how he got his first customers using the Q Lattice. 